Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about um, uh, character-focused focused fix-its for our Quantum Craft series. Um, when it comes to a fix-it, um, one of the more satisfying um, choices you can make as a writer is to focus on your character and giving your character justice giving your character love and acceptance and smiting the fuck out of anybody and everybody who ever did them wrong. Making your unicorn happy is a special happy place. Super special happy. So tonight we're going to talk about it. And um, talk about the mechanics. We're going to talk about uh, the methods and you guys can ask questions. Um, put them in the ask me questions section so they'll be easy to find. So let's get started. Jillian? Yes. What's your <laughs> That was kind of sexy. I don't even know what to do with you. <laughs> um well, it was, wasn't it? I mean, I wasn't the only, I couldn't be the only one who thought so. Um, I, <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't dial any number, sweetheart. You're not on the phone. Or you could, well, I guess you could be on your phone, but you're not talking. You're not on a phone call. Um, your favorite character, I mean, your unicorn, your main unicorn is Tony Dinozo. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the the emotionally character based fixits that you would like to see for him, um, based on canon events? Things that you'd like to throw off the board. I mean, for Tony, I think that there are so many places in canon where it would be great to see him step out and be more than. Give second in command, um, mm -hmm. and really, there it could be. It could be as early as way back in season one. I think the further back you go, the less emotionally charged it is. Um, but I would really like to see him, for, from an internal motivation perspective, I would like to see fixits where he's coming from a place of strength, not reactionary. Um, that, you know, maybe something is going better in his life or he has a, he has a wake up call or there's something going on with him for him, right. That is about wanting more for his life than to just be the comic relief. Right. Um, and that, and that he goes out and he sets about making that happen as opposed to they treated me badly. And so I'm leaving. That's very satisfying. Okay. I'm, I'm not saying that's not satisfying because it, it is. Uh, but I just, I think that when it comes to the, the character focus fix it in, in that fandom, that it, it is a lot more of the reactionary thing. It's the, the salty, the bitter salty thing. And that could, that's very satisfying, but there really isn't a lot of the other side, which is he just wants to do better. He ha wants to be, hey, discover some ambition for himself or that being a good agent is more important than being on Gibbs' team or whatever. You know what I mean? 
So, yeah, I mean, because there's something about um, taking your character out of a situation before they're shit on. Mm-hmm. Before they're damaged. Before they're traumatized or broken. You know? I mean, it's kind of why I think it's really popular in um, the Harry Potter fandom to to rescue Harry before he ever goes to Hogwarts because the damage, a lot of the damage is already done by that point. Mm -hmm. And once he's introduced to the magical world and the way he's introduced to it, it, it creates something you have to kind of unravel as opposed to something you build up. Right. And, and so it's, it's just a very different, it's a different focus. And there's a difference. So when it comes, when we talk about a character focused fix it, as opposed to an event focused fix it, sometimes you're going to hit the events too, but don't conflate this with being like a character based character driven writer. Cause I'm ca- more of a character driven writer than a, than a, than a plot driven writer, even though I certainly have a plot. Um, I'm more focused on the character side of things than I am on the event side. Whereas- that's, not the, that's not the same thing as being a, as a character focused fix it. Although certainly I would imagine character driven writers tend to gravitate towards character based fix its. I would say that while I do pay a lot of attention to my characterization, that I do tend to be as a writer, more plot focused. Um, and I build my plot around the things that I think my character needs and wants. But um, my plot, it does the driving. That That's my comfortable place. Hmm. See, I would have thought you were still kind of more character driven, even though you also plot. Because I see, when I think about plot-focused stories, they tend to be light on... Um, like I've read some sci-fi and fantasy stories that are more about the story than they are about the characters. And I don't see you as not having your stories ultimately be about the characters. I'm going to say something really arrogant, but that's just because they're not very good writers. Well, that could be too. Yeah. I mean, really, and that's ugly and I'm not sorry, but um, here's the thing. Um, if you, one of the skills you should put in your toolbox is the ability to weave your characterization into your plot and to so that your characterization isn't sitting on top of your plot like a fucking flag and it's like it's you're throwing it at your reader it should be your character should move in your plot in such a way that your reader learns about them in a very natural fashion that's one of the first things that I taught myself is to weave my characterization into my plot events. So I'm not throwing my character at the reader. But characterization choices, there have been times when I have made choices that serve my plot 
instead of choices that serve my character. Which is why when I think about myself as a writer, um, I do tend to think of myself as more plot focused. But I think that one of the things that I always tell new writers is that even if you make the choice to be more focused on your plot than your character, you can't leave your character behind. And you need to do your character bio and you need to know everything you need, you need to know everything you possibly can about your character, where they were born, who their parents are, who the first kiss was, if, if that's something that really matters. And it does in a lot of situations where you're dealing with um, past relationships or sexuality, those things come into play. Whether the reader finds out or not, you, you need to know. And so in that respect, um, having a deep respect for characterization plays a part, but I do consider myself more plot driven than character driven as a writer, mm. which is why when my plot's not working, nothing works. A lot of times people who are characterization, who are characterization focused can kind of push through with their character and kind of, you know, meandered into a scene and try to figure out what's going to happen next with their plot. If their plot's not working, I can't do that. Yeah, I usually only have to stop and replot if there's something catastrophically wrong, like I tripped into a plot hole. Um, usually I can course correct. It's like minor course corrections. Um, but I stay with the characterization. Like, But at least you stop. I mean, there are some event and plot-focused writers who don't stop when their characterization and their plot aren't meshing. And then you get... I mean, the worst... I think to me, like, the worst thing you could hear about a, an event or plot-driven story is something along the lines of the world-building is incredible, but there's just there weren't any characters that were very interesting. Because people latch on to characters, right? So they want to write about that. That I mean, fan, fandom mostly is about people latching onto characters. And, it, but occasionally you will see like a case of where like there's a fandom where the world building is really interesting, but there's not really a character that anybody really is attached to. And then you'll see like a bunch of um, characters from other fandoms plunked into that space. That's like, okay. And that's because I think it's a failure of, um, characterization that that the, that there's so much focus on world building and the plot and the events that the characters wind up feeling two-dimensional so but some people are very balanced right and and i think the goal really is to be balanced but know what's know what drives you and i'm i'm very character driven so a character focused fix it is not the same thing as being a character driven writer it what the difference would be if if you're trying to if you're doing an event focused fix it you're looking more at fixing events in canon if you're doing character focused fix it you're looking at fixing things for your character which might incidentally fix if some events in canon and it's just a difference of approach right and some fandoms lean themselves more towards um a character fix it than others yeah um now like mcu you could really go with event or character focused fix it. It's like you could be making things better for Tony or Bucky Barnes or those are all things that are very popular in the MCU. Um, but also other thing that MCU is very also very event focused. Let's fix these events. Let's make things go better. Um, I do think that uh, now Teen Wolf I do think tends to be more character focused fix it because people tend to not always but a lot of it is about making events not happen. And 
<laughs> you know, we're just, or people just say, none of this shit happened. I'm just ignoring all of the stuff from Canon. None of that crap with the Deadpool happened and the wild hunt. None of that crap happened because it's stupid. Um, so that, that is not, it just wiping things out, doing the author hand wave of destiny over an event is not an event focused fix. It. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying. You're just, if you, you're just unbreaking your feelings. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, doing a hand wave and saying an event didn't occur is not an event fix it. So it's just a matter of, you know, when you when you decide what are you trying to do? Are you trying to fix things? Is your, is your fix focused around getting an event fixed? Are you trying to prevent Thanos from coming? Are you what are you trying to do? Or are you trying to take your character on a better path? OK, and so it's it knowing which way you're going to go is really important when you're writing a fix it. Um I typically would write, I can't actually think of a, a case of where I would write in a, more of a plot because sometimes you do get events fixed, but I always tend to, because I'm a character driven writer, I would probably go towards the character driven fix it. So the character based fix it, not driven character based fix it, which is take the character and make things better. Whether that's Tony Denozo, Tony Stark, Bruce Banner, um, Styles, Noah, Derek, especially Derek, make things better. Make all the things better. Make all the things better. But, and because I know that's how I focus, um, that's the lens I'm looking through is what journey do I want to take this character on? Because it, it, it affects how you plot, right? It affects what goes into your story. If you're doing an event or a plot-based fix-it, there's a lot of stuff about character, you know, like character interactions and character dynamics and personal growth and a lot of that stuff that you may not need. You're still going to need characterization, but you don't necessarily need a lot of the same context. So it's just, when you're doing a fix it, you gotta know what it is you wanna do and what you're trying to accomplish. And so that's what we're talking about. Character-driven, the character-based fix it. And and you know certainly all the characters that I like to write about, um, it's lost. Oh, you mean, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do consider um, If Found Please Return, character-driven fix it. Um, because, it doesn't really touch on any, it, it barely touches on any, that's a problem, no problem. Um, it doesn't really touch on, and actually it's an AU technically, but if you want to look at the fix, there are fix it elements in there. And it's about getting Tony a better family. It's about giving him that sense of family, uh, the support structure. He kind of can come into his own because um, I think NCIS canon makes it really clear that, Tony is really emotionally more invested in his team than I think they are in him. And probably because he doesn't have a lot of solid connection outside of work. And for people who work a lot, that, that happens, right? When, when you're a workaholic and you're working sometimes 16 hours a day, or you're not leaving the office for three days at a time or whatever, sometimes your closest connections do become the people you work with. And for good or bad. Yeah. And in, in, in Tony's case, it's, it's bad. It's, it's for bad. Um, so in, in If Found, I was trying to address getting him a better support structure, dealing with getting him a family. Because I really wanted it was it's very family. I mean, the whole that whole genre, I would call. If you told me what's the genre of this, I'd say it was family. So, um, and I think that that's really key with a, a Tony, a character for a Tony Dinoza-driven fix that is, is to give him more in his life as a, as a, as a foundation so that, and so that he can make that break from... NCIS from Gibbs, really. Not even from NCIS, from Gibbs. Um, so yeah, I definitely would say If Found is definitely a, um, it's definitely character-driven, and it is a character. The, the elements that are fix-it in that 
um, are are definitely it's character based because we really don't get much into the events in um, the only event I think that gets dealt with in NCIS really overall is the boxed in stuff which um, sends Ziva back to Israel but it was so not the focus that all of that stuff her getting sent back to Israel and Jenny Shepard getting in trouble and all of that stuff Jenny's house of cards coming down was like a comment in the hospital to from Gibbs to Tony that this is what's happened and this is what's going on. It's not on screen because it's not the focus. The focus were things that like, you know, there were milestones for Tony getting, um, accepting his, that he had the family, confronting um, Denozo Sr., um, accepting his real name, that he was really Alex Shepard and going by that, uh, being able to open up to his family and rely on them, um, it, realizing that the only reason he was clinging to the job was because of Gibbs. And so he has all these emotional milestones and those, that's the critical path. Tony's emotional journey is the critical path in the story. So I got an email once, I guess it's been about six months. And um, the person said that they, that they listened to the, the craft um, podcasts. Um, but often we speak of writing with such terms that she finds it intimidating when we say things like GMC, but what we don't explain what it is, which is why I started to explain what it was um, and tried to offer explanations to terms that we use in, in the craft show. And when you said critical path, I thought, huh, there we go again. <laughs> well, crit critical, critical path is a project management term more than a writing right. term. But it's right. About but it does play really well into to, to writing. It yeah, really does. Your plot points, when you set down your, because there's a discussion, like people ask, well, what's a plot point? A, a plot point is the thing that happens that feeds into the next thing that's going to happen. Not everything that happens is a plot point. So when you put all your plot points together, that's your critical path. So my plot points tend to be about events that lead, that are that are driven by internal motivation, right? So in that story, not in all my stories, but in that story. So that is the series of plot points. You create your critical path, which is these things have to happen in order to build the story. Unless you're doing a nonlinear narrative, in which case I don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> but when you're doing a when you're doing a nonlinear narrative, you still have to consider your path of of your plot point progression. And then you have to be careful when you're telling those plot points out of order that you Ooh, don't. Let me do your disclaimer. Do not send either one of us links, actually, um, with nonlinear stories that you think are excellent that will change our minds. We don't want them. Don't send them to us. Yeah, we don't care. Lady Horner doesn't want them either. I really, I mean, one of the things that when I realize I'm hit, I'm hitting a nonlinear narrative, it's like, a, it doesn't matter how much I've been enjoying it. I pretty much like 99.9% .9 of the time, nope out. So I'm not interested in trying to overcome that. It's just something I don't like. Um, and when it works for me, it's usually in a movie, to be honest. It, it doesn't and even work. then it can be really frustrating. I remember the first time I watched Pulp Fiction. It's frustrating. It's like you want to cut the scenes up and put them in order and rewatch it. Right. But then not because something really terrible fucked up happens in Pulp Fiction that you just leave that out. You just don't yeah, watch just leave that one completely out of the of the conversation. Um, it's just no. Um, so when it comes to being character focused, which there's there's no right or wrong character focused versus plot focused. I mean, character based or plot based fix it 
there's no right or wrong there. It's about what you were trying to accomplish. Um, so one of the ways you can determine this is when you're looking at your, um, your ideas for your quantum bang, you need to ask yourself, what are you fixing? If you are going to go into an NCIS fic where you want to fix Tony's relationship with himself, then you're, this is, this is character based. Um, if you go into the fic where you say, okay, I'm going to make sure that um, the events of, I'm going to make sure that, that Tony doesn't kill Michael Rifkin. Or if he does, he doesn't go to Israel. That is more of a plot-based fix-it. Um, Cold Case was an excellent TV show. I miss Cold Case. I thought it was fantastic. Um, but it's it was told in such a way that only the case worked. Because, of, because they were working cold cases. So there would be flashbacks of um, the case. And the characters that lived through the, you know, the case. And it was usually murder. Um, and then... The, the detectives were in present, but the main timeline was still linear. Exactly. So you would see the detective going through her day, doing her thing. And then um, there would be flashbacks to the crime as we, as we, as the crime unfolded, we would see it. And but there are two different time streams, right? So it's it's non-linear in the sense that there are two different time streams, and you're going back and forth. And sometimes the past, the time stream of the past, the case time stream wasn't always linear. But the case progression, which is the main um, plot line, which is the progression of investigating the case, that was always told in a linear fashion. And then they had flashbacks into the pieces of the case um, as they as they had discovered them. So sometimes those were linear and sometimes they weren't. And it was, they did it really well. They managed to make it so that it wasn't it confusing. Was very clearly defined. Right. And um, framed. It was framed very well. What else? Um, but uh, the show um, How to Get Away with Murder is told in a nonlinear fashion. Um, apparently, is so is that, I do that think one FBI show. Not the new one, but the old one. I don't remember that one. I do think nonlinear works better in general in a visual way, like whether it's a movie. And you see, you see nonlinear a ton in movies, right? Like you're starting in the present, like a character sitting there being interrogated, smoking a cigarette. They're being asked, you know, um, uh, usual suspects is nonlinear in the sense that, you know, you start with um, verbal being interrogated or, or giving a statement or whatever. And he's telling pieces of things that happened in the past. Right. Um, that works better to me on the screen than it does in a book. And I just actually, it's, it's a very common plot device. If there's a really good reason to do that, because like usual suspects is a case that there's a really good reason why that's told the way it is because verbal's POV and the fact that he's telling it and the spin he's putting on it winds up being very important. So it being told in that way winds up being really critical. But there are a lot of books that just start that way. They start with this really dramatic moment, a character being arrested or, or something, and then it flat and then it flashes back to three days ago, twenty-four hours before, you know, whatever. It's really it's just it's a and gimmick. I'm like, no, fuck you. If there's not a reason to do it, it's a, it. It, it's a gimmick. And I don't like gimmicks. And gimmicks are pretty obvious to me. And Fan fiction writers do it just as this is not a novelty to fan fiction. This happens in books too, and I just don't like that gimmick of you know a day before. Just start the story where it started. If there's not actually a good reason to start with the character being arrested or something like that, just 
don't do it. So like somebody really highly recommended a fan fiction story to me and I'm gonna alter some of the details here because I don't want to be recognizable what I'm talking about. But the character is basically the present tense, the present narrative is the characters like sitting in the desert contemplating their life, right? And it just keeps, it flashes back to events in the past, not in a linear fashion. It's like whatever the character is musing about, it flashes back to that event. And then that event is told, and then it's back to the character pondering something else. It's like, oh, but I guess what fit into it was this thing that happened actually three years before that. And then you go and you see that scene. It was just, it, there was no purpose to it. Because all of the scenes where the characters sitting in the desert pondering their life were boring as fuck. They were boring. And this this hodgepodge patchwork thing we got of the storytelling about what actually happened. It was actually an interesting series of events. It would have been so much more interesting. They were robbed of their tension by being told in, in, in this um, past perfect tense. And past perfect tense is when um, something is being told that happens before the main timeline. So, so what's up about chat room? I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk to speak to, I wanted to speak to it. Um, the only thing worse for me than a flashback is in fan. In, this is this this happens in fandom, um, when the author labels the flashback, begin flashback. The first time I saw that, I thought to myself, "What? What the fuck are you doing?" It is one thing to flashback, but if you have to label it, you've got no business doing it. Yeah, and putting the whole thing in italics. Lord have mercy. <laughs> the nested flashback. Fuck the nested flashback. I don't even what. What? I, How does that even work? <laughs> I know, I noped out of a long story. Like we're talking a couple hundred thousand words that I was like seventy five percent of the way through because all of a sudden there was a nested flashback. I was like, oh my god, we're in a flashback already. How can we be flashing back? It's just like that is the dumbest no. thing that I've ever seen. But yeah, and the only to see a labeled flashback is is just the the stuff of of hilarity when i see it i can't help but laugh i'm like oh come on now honey you don't if, if, if you gotta do that you got no business doing it at all no. i mean the thing about writing in a non-linear narrative if it's going to be good it's somebody who knows what they're doing and most people who wind up throwing in a non-linear narrative they're emulating something they've read probably and they don't actually know how to do it well and i can spot a gimmicky um non-linear narrative like and some people, I, I honestly like this. There's one author that her wordcraft is really nice, but she cannot seem to help but write in this hodgepodge patchwork of timeline. And I just, I think it's because she doesn't actually know how to keep the tension in a linear narrative. That's my impression: is that she has no clue how to do that because her stories would be better if she just told them as opposed to you know, getting your attention with something dramatic happening in the present and then, oh, flashing back to this. Basically, the past events that led to it wind up reading as boring. Well, there's a difference between labeling a flashback, which you should never, ever, ever, ever do, and labeling a time skip. Um, it is perfectly reasonable to start your next chapter with six months later. Yeah, or three days ago, if you're going to write nonlinear. Or 200 years later. Or... If An you actual put date. A date on your first chapter and your next chapter. Well, actually, really and honestly, if you're going to do that, it probably should be a prologue. You do your prologue in the past and then you 
you date your first chapter so that your reader knows that there's been a huge time skip. That makes perfect sense. But labeling your flashback, if you if an, if an author has to label the flashback, that means they've not done a proper transition into the flashback. Well, you were just reading a terrible book, sweetie. <laughs> well, if an author if an author is giving you date stamps throughout the novel, there might be a date stamp in the middle. But just right. But some... she said that there was nothing. That it did a time skip in the middle of a chapter, two hundred years in the, into the future. In the middle of a chapter, <laughs> <laughs> giant time skips. I mean, I actually had this conversation with somebody once that they they had they didn't have enough material. They felt like for a full chapter before their big time skip. And I said, then don't don't write any of it. I mean, like I'm, because we're talking about like they they felt like they had like eight hundred words of material, and I was like then you don't need it. I mean, it's just, it was, you, now prologues are often short. Okay. They're often shorter than a normal chapter. That's com completely typical, but generally your chapters, they float in a certain range. So if you're writing four to 6,000 word chapters, an 800 word chapter is weird, but a, you know, an 800 word prologue might not be. So. But if it, it's you know, just 800 words and I felt like I desperately needed it, I would just put it on the previous chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but to just to, but to just do a giant to to write eight hundred words and then you know to say you need a big time. Yes, if you're going to do a giant time skip, you probably should, unless you have a chapter that is nothing but big time skips. Like sometimes you, I've seen this where somebody will have a chapter that's sort of like skipping through time. It's almost like an interlude. But it's not just one big time skip. It's like, you know. It's like a training montage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's a matter of just kind of put your, you just got to, the thing is, when you do any of these things, there's, there's a way to do a lot of these things. But you kind of have to learn it. You just can't throw it in there. And people do just kind of throw it in there. So, and I see a lot, the, one of my problems with nonlinear narrative aside from the fact that it's frustrating for me, is that people are attempting to do that. I actually can tell they're attempting to create tension with their nonlinear narrative. What they actually do is mess up their pace, which removes any tension they built with these suspense moments that they drop in. It's like all of your tension that you're trying to build with a suspense is ruined by how your pace is slogged down with these flashbacks. So, you know... Anyway, so we kind of, so when it comes to um, kind of detoured on nonlinear narrative, but it is, there are examples of nonlinear narrative out there that I like, and I know a good one when I see it, so I don't need anybody recommending ones that they think are good, because 99% of the time when somebody tells me they're recommending me something that they think is a good example of something, they're wrong. I'm just going to say that flat out. 99% of the recs I get in my email where somebody says, this is an example of a great version of blah, they're wrong. They're just flat out wrong. It is not a great example of that. And Julie's already established a new rule. If you send her something because you think it's amazing and she does not, she will email you back and tell you all the reasons that this thing sucks. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little story about responding to things I probably should not respond to. I got a dick pic on Twitter. <laughs> Another one? Uh, I haven't gotten one in like years, right? I got a dick pic. I got an unsolicited dick pic on, on Twitter. Okay, so here's the thing. I think because my podcast has kind of spread out, uh, you know, um, we got on iHeartRadio today, as a matter of fact. Um, we hit iHeart. So now we're on all of them. All of them I can think of anyway. Um, and you can look at the um, 
the uh, the, the list on my podcast page on my website. But anyway, I got an unsolicited dick pic. And so I was like, I can ignore it. I can block them. Or I can one-up them. I know you went for the one-upping. And because I do have a very good dear friend who keeps a collection of doom dicks, I went up to him. I sent him a picture of a dick as long as my forearm. Well, you're kind of short, so I don't know that's all that impressive. I mean, it was, it's 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 that big one. Not that says nothing as you know the one I'm talking about, the one that hangs to his knees. Oh, his that, knee? one. oh that wow. one. That one. That one. That one. I remember that dick. <laughs> that big. Yeah, that one. The third leg dick. Yeah, yeah tripod did. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even like put any words on it. There was no words at all. I just responded with the pic. Margaret, I don't think you're old enough to see it, sweetheart. <laughs> the thing is, that thing is so heavy he might have been hard. It's really hard to tell because there's no way <laughs> there's no way that thing is getting any lift. I mean, yeah, he he could have been hard. Um um <laughs> I just you're a baby. And I don't think you need to see something like that, especially at your current level of, you know, what you said before in the chat room about, uh, I mean, at 19, if I'd have seen a dick that big, I'd have never let another man get near me. <laughs> no. It, it's a good thing when I was 19, I didn't know they came that big. <laughs> That's the kind of, you know, there's a fine line between challenge and nightmare. That's just most of the time you see a big dick and it's like, oh, I'm gonna climb on that. That's a challenge. See that mountain, climb that mountain. And then you <laughs> did you get a transplant from a horse? <laughs> How did that happen? Do you have a medical condition? Probably. He probably does in fact have a medical condition. Anyways. So the dude responded back and called me a pervert. Really? You're a pervert because he sent you a dick pic. <laughs> Whatever, but dude. I'm the pervert. I mean, the thing is, when it comes to sending me recommendations, it's like if if people are ignoring the basics of craft, you, you're you're like you know. Somebody sent me a recommendation recently. On the first page, there was a chapter. There was a paragraph. A paragraph was 540 words. And more than one, I'm going to tell you, there's more than one 500 plus word chapter, paragraph. But I was just like, I'm not reading that. I'm not reading that. This person hasn't got any idea what they're doing. Um, now, I, I do read the occasional train wreck. I, I, I'll admit there. But it's just, I get this stuff that's hot mess. I mean, somebody recommended something to me that was littered, littered with, uh, you know, comments and parentheses. And and it was it wasn't it wasn't even parenthetical phrases, right? Like a lot of the times it was just the author talking to the audience. I'm like, why would you recommend this to me? I just I felt so like it was almost insulting. <laughs> so almost insulting. But it's really good it's really good if you can ignore all the writing problems, the craft problems. Really? I, like, I can't. I can't. Especially not especially not the author talking to the audience in parentheses, right in the middle. It's just Well, the reason I did it is because when I got the picture of the dick, all I could think of was that scene in Crocodile Dundee where that uh, guy comes knife. up and pulls a knife and he goes, 
that's not a knife. <laughs> and then he pulls out this giant sword. Bowie <laughs> knife. Is a was, knife. <laughs> that's a knife. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> it was. Yeah. So I was like, I'm gonna pull out a bigger dick. <laughs> you pulled out the Bowie knife version of a dick. Was it at least was the dick pic he sent you at least tolerable? I mean, he sent me one of those ones where he had a remote control. Next to his dick, I guess for reference, he's a direct TV customer. I mean, my voodoo remote is really small. <laughs> That's not a knife. <laughs> you know, dudes will be like putting stuff up beside their dick so you can see, like, you know, have a reference. Like they'll have a Coke can or. <laughs> a TV yep. remote or their cell phone or something or you know but co coke can I understand but re TV remote's a little sketchy because if I don't have the same model TV I'm not getting any information out of that but yeah it was a direct TV remote I'm not sure that's the kind of advertisement that they really want Jesus have a dick good morning here's a dick okay <laughs> Okay, so character-based fix-its. Um, I'm just reading the chat room. So this will be a moment of thoughtful silence that she will delete, except that I'm yapping. <laughs> Someone got bit with me for editing the podcast. They were like, before you left Blog Talk, your, um, your podcast... Um, were uh, I felt like it was a really organic experience because you didn't edit them. Dude, are you serious? Just just to let you know, because I didn't respond to your email because you were a dick. Um, there wasn't a single podcast on Blog Talk that I didn't edit. It's just easier to edit it now. Yeah, and she can take out. She can. It's really easy for her to get the silences out. It's a lot harder with Blog Talk. So because I couldn't also because I wasn't using two channels on Blog Talk because it was a phone call. The quality was actually really bad. I had no idea until I was listening to an old po podcast versus the new one. The sound, the sound quality is ridiculous. Anyways, and I was paying for that. Anyways, um, with the new one, I, I have two channels or, or more, depending on how many people are on the, on the chat. Um, so I can actually go into just Jilly's channel and edit out all of her typing. As long as she doesn't talk and type at the same time. And she often doesn't. Um, and I could edit out my sighs or my 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 sniffles. Yeah. Well, there was one day I said something that but I I don't th I think without the podcast, without the chat room, it really wouldn't have had any context, but it was probably would have been I was tempted to say, we need to take that out. <laughs> no, <laughs> and no, I'm not telling you what it is. Um <laughs> I couldn't find it actually. I did look for it. I meant to look for it again, but I, I got distracted because um, she, she said something under her breath that, in retrospect, she probably shouldn't have said. But because um, she got surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I got surprised. But sometimes I will say, sometimes I get pinged. Like I've been pinged. How many messages have I gotten since the podcast started? Eight. Um, I haven't even read them all, um, but I get pinged throughout the podcast. So it's not uncommon for me to get m multiple messages. And sometimes I'm responding. If I mutter something, sometimes I'm responding to something that's occurring elsewhere. But sometimes I am responding to something in the podcast and I should have just 
sitting on your hands doesn't work when you're on the phone or when you're on when you're on the air because that's that's what I do when somebody says something stupid in a chat, right? Is I sit on my hands. So I'm going to sit on my hands until my urge to tell them off is is complete. But that doesn't work when we're live. Last time I did that. Last time I did that, I actually my, my hand actually fell asleep. <laughs> the urge never went away, huh? So, funny fact, you have to have a certain number of subscribers on YouTube in order to have a live broadcast on YouTube. Because um, I mentioned playing Sims 4 and doing like the 100, the 100 Baby Challenge with a gay man, or with men, as the, uh, as, the, as the baby daddy, mama, whatever. The pregnant person would be the man. And you guys said you'd want to watch that. So I thought, I'll go over to YouTube and see how that would work. I already have enough subscribers on YouTube to do a live broadcast. And I've never posted a single video. I'm like, I was like, do you have? I didn't think you had any content on. I don't. <laughs> it's okay. So weird. It's not it's not a big number, but I already have the number. And I was like, because I said, okay, I'll push the button and then they'll tell me how many I need to have. And um yeah. I was like, are you serious? But I don't have any content. <laughs> Kara's too dirty to get monetized. She would. Get... I would have. To, I would have to be very, very clean to be on YouTube and monetize. Um, so it's unlikely she'd get demonetized in a heartbeat. But then a lot of um simmers on YouTube even show the Sims woohooing, and they don't get demonetized. You you never know what YouTube's going to crack down on, and sometimes it's a case of just YouTube didn't get to them or whatever. But yeah. Um, and I don't know actually what foul language qualifies to get demonetized. Is it just the F word or is it, you know, explicit sexual language or, or what? I mean, I don't know. Well, I actually, what I had, um, was looking at was doing a live stream. Um, you're just doing a stream like this, but I'd be playing my game and talking to people in the chat while, my sims seduce people seduce people to get pregnant <laughs> because there's already a couple of simmers who do that and they don't get demonetized anyways it was just amusing um, that i that i already have enough um subscribers to do um a a um a uh, a live broadcast on um a streaming broadcast on youtube YouTube says that the cursing will not affect your monetization status. Three things can affect whether your video is demonetized for profanity on the platform. If it's in the video's title, something in the thumbnail image, and how often the language is used at the beginning of the video. The company defines the beginning of a video at around 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> that should be okay. <laughs> Unless I totally go off the rails in the first 30 seconds. Cuss words mm. that aren't usually heard on primetime television, like fuck, are okay to use in monetized videos. However, YouTube says to avoid the words at the beginning of the video, and creators should keep the words out of the video title and definitely off the thumbnail. Some words will not fly with YouTube at all. Racial slurs, derogatory content, and mean or hateful content directed at an individual or specific group of people are not safe for monetization. Context is key when it comes to certain types of videos, such as. But we 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 both follow. Was it Patricia Bright? And she got demonetized for the um, because she said because she got she had a a nipple slip. No, it, she was using all of these um, 
no, she she was talking about the fit of her pants, and I think she said camel toe. She got demonetized over that. Is that what it was? And I, but then there had, was that one time that that pair of shorts was practically her her ass practically ate those shorts, and yeah. I think she got demonetized over that one too. But that was I think because she was drawing attention to her parts. Yeah, but she was told she couldn't say that apparently. So really? she was trying to come up with ways of saying that like something didn't fit well in the crotch area. But she's like, apparently they wanted her to be very careful about how she described the fit of the clothes in the crotch area. Um, she's had nipple slips before, but she usually does a blur out. Yeah, a little blur. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, she was. I remember her getting demonetized over that. I mean, to me, that's like really camel toe is is gonna get us get that. That's like worse than fuck what prudes are watching your channel right so but what happens is is that youtube does a transcript of your of your show um and they use that transcript to determine whether or not you're a problem yeah and they started apparently demonetizing for word conspiracy so anybody who like if people said even people were who were saying i guess conspiracy theories were like bad juju on YouTube for a while. So if they caught you using the term conspiracy, even if you were just saying this isn't a conspiracy theory, you'd get demonetized because wow. they don't understand. They don't understand the context. They just were like, nope. So people were saying they were actually once they caught people caught on to what they were doing. People were like putting up little screens. You know, we're not going to use this word, and it would the flash of the word conspiracy verbally <laughs> within within the within the video. But it is a, and then you'd get a card that says conspiracy theory that such and such did this for such and such reason, and it's just like, oh my god! And they were doing these shenanigans to keep from being demonetized for using the phrase conspiracy theory. That is weird. So, anyway. Um, I feel like I've lost the plot. <laughs> Sorry. Like, no, it's just... I'm it's a little, not your, I'm a little it's random. Not, it's not your fault. It's just been... It's, it's already been that kind of week, and it's only Tuesday. Um, a nork? Margaret. Someone go get her a big dick to look at, because she's clearly got too much time on her hands. <laughs> Don't stick it in my chat room. Stick it in her DMs. Yeah, go DM Margaret a big dick. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Unsolicited dick pics are not cool. But you can put it in the corner. <laughs> Foon. We're back to Foon. For fuck's sake. So, like, there are a couple of characters that when you look at their circumstances in canon, you want to fix them. And uh, Tony Dinozo is one. Harry Potter is one. Tony Derek, Stark is another. Derek um, Hale. Derek Hale. These characters, um, they draw your attention. Um, because of their trauma and their pain. And you want to make them feel better. Mm -hmm. And you have to know what kind of, you know, if, if what kind of fix it you want to write there's this funny little thing that happens where i see like people writing what i would consider like a character driven fix it or character based fix it which is just they're making things better for the character but they've really cast the character in the role of the victim and yet the narrative suggests that the character keeps going i'm not a victim i don't want to be treated like a victim da, 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 da. and yet they keep piling on victim circumstances you know if you want to kind of like wump the fuck out of your character that's fine just own it right that's kind of like a misdirect to 
have the narrative saying that the character is not a victim and yet you're basically making them a victim. A big old victim. For 70,000 words, you know? Um, just get in and, and... But some of these characters are really, they are victims of things, right? So the whole anti-victim narrative is just bizarre. But just know what you're trying to do. Um, and if you're fixing their circumstances by making their circumstances worse, which is a tactic, it, it that could be, um, just own that that's what you're doing, right? And and decide where where the making it worse stops. Because sometimes some characters, I can I can see the point that some characters are so deeply entrenched in their circumstances that you kind of do maybe have to get it a little bit worse before they you know wake up and move on, right? You know, you're you're using that as the catalyst. Things getting worse as the catalyst to get them to to ignite and go. Okay, it's time for me to move on. Um, but just know where you're going to stop that, and that's like really part of n- knowing what your end game is and what it is you're trying to accomplish, as opposed to just beating down somebody for seventy thousand words. <laughs> I, I said in um in in axiom that um. Gibbs is basically uh, Gibbs basically has a phobia around the idea of being wrong. I think that's true. That it's so you just can't. I mean, they they devoted a whole episode to him after um, at the end of uh, Rule Fifty One. The episode is called Rule Fifty One. I think it's the end of season seven, and the whole episode was devoted to. Um, Gibbs creating a new rule at that point in his life that sometimes he's wrong. That was rule 51 is sometimes you're wrong. Right. It took him, it took really? him like 60 years to come to that realization. This is a man who has a phobia about being wrong. Or a fetish about being right. Yeah. Rule six has always been the one that I, fa- I found the most galling. Mm-hmm. Or the one about not apologizing. Because Sometimes you really do owe somebody a fucking apology and you should own up to it and just take it like a man, Gibbs. Just own up to the fact that you're wrong. If you do something that hurts somebody, there's nothing, no reason not to apologize. I mean, the don't apologize thing makes sense with like an enemy, right? Why would you apologize? And even still, depending upon how, you know, like if your enemy's a Canadian, they might apologize. (laughs) <laughs> Canadians apologize a lot. That was for you, Dark. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My whole family lives in Canada. I've been there a lot. People are much nicer, I will say. It's not just a like a cliche. But sometimes that sorry sounds really fucking sarcastic. Yeah. Yes. Um yes, Shadow. It that is vicious is the story you're thinking of. Where Gibbs tell it's towards the end. Gibbs tells Tony never to don't apologize, and Tony has a complete meltdown about it. <laughs> never apologize. Yeah. How 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 have our animals ruined you? Everyone needs an emotional support penguin. Everyone needs an emotional support penguin. <sighs> yes, they do. And an ocelot kitten is not a, not a bad thing either, right? I actually have one of those card, those, those cord guards, you know, those oh, that's pri- the penguin. I have the penguin. Yeah. I have a penguin. A lot I also of, I think- have a clownfish on my other one. 
I think quite a few people bought those because we talked about them on the podcast that night. <laughs> I have, I still, I have three different, you know, it, since we talked about, it, I got, I found three different sets and I put them in my shopping cart on Amazon and I keep pondering which set I want because they're not all exactly the same. No, they're not. Um, so, um, so there just, are there some characters we just want to, to fix things for them as opposed to fix plot? Which is why it's, it's really tempting and very satisfying to take Tony and just like take him to Hawaii and give him to a seal. Yes. And the question Which, is how. Because fuck all those people and all their stupid shit. And the we talked about the unsubtle fuck you. The double bird on the way out the door can be very satisfying. But like I said, f- for me, where I think that like the next thing, maybe not the next thing, because I have a lot of prog- projects in process, but I would like to see him come into his own and go, I just want more than this. I'm worth more than this. I would like him to get to the point where he can say, not only do I want more than this, I deserve more than this. Yeah. So I have to say, part of my head canon about Tony is if if you've ever done, I mean, I think everybody has something that they're really good at, you know. But if you ever like have something where you are, you kind of outshine everybody who else who does it. You're just exceptional at it, you're, but you, for whatever reason, you, this is your thing. That can seem like it's a good thing until it's not. Um, people can get very resentful for somebody who's just really exceptional at something, uh, depending upon what it is. Um, whether it's the same person, it's a person who always is got the highest GPA. You know, the one who the they that's the kind of thing that doesn't actually like in school make you popular, or the person who can like sit down at the piano and with very minimal lessons, they just it can make the people who have slaved to learn that a little resentful about that kind of natural talent or whatever. So um, I, I, this, this is not, this is not a right or wrong kind of thing, but when it does happen, there can be resentment around people who are, when, when people are really good at things. So I have a headcanon about Tony that he is an exceptional natural investigator, that he's a very abstract thinker and that it actually had brought him more trouble than not early in his career. Um, that the kind of environments he'd been in in the in the police departments and stuff made him being that good at that young was problematic. And so he learned started learning how to dumb down his skills, not in a not solving the case kind of thing, but kind of like leading other people to the answer so that it didn't look like it was all him kind of thing. Um, and he carried on with that habit at NCIS. And also because he wanted to be sure that everybody had a thing, right? Like McGee had the, he was the computer guy and Kate was supposed to be the profiler, but it's my headcanon that Tony is a better profiler. Um, Kate let too many of her biases into her. Yes. She, she, she profiled not based upon information. She profiled based upon her, her personal perceptions and beliefs, which is, yeah. So it is, it's my, and the thing is when he, when you, it's, this is my belief about well, this is the way I, I work with the character in my head is that it started getting out of hand, right? So it went from instead of him like kind of hiding how good he is or kind of dumbing it down a little bit, letting other people take credit for his because like um, 
you know, if he leads McGee to the answer, then it looks like McGee came up with the answer, even though it was actually Tony, right? So if he, if this is the way I work with how I progress him through this kind of situations, is that when he comes to a realization, it's like, why, when did it get so out of control that it, that it became what it is now? And I like, um, and in Daring, Daring is of course only, is less than 5K, so there's not a whole lot of room to explore this, but that was, is Ian became the catalyst for Tony having that wake up call. Um, is that it wasn't, it stopped becoming about giving everybody their thing and not being, and it became not being better at anything than anyone else. Like he couldn't be a better sniper than Gibbs. He couldn't be better at profiling than Kate. And so he just stopped not being the best at anything. And it was, um, so Ian was the catalyst for him having that awareness and just deciding to, put a stop to it. He just said, I just, he has to stop. So I would really like, I mean, it would be, I really want to write a story where he just, just shines like a rock star that he just stops hiding that he stops taking, you know, letting other people take credit for his insights that he, he just doesn't, he just, he just shows exactly what he's made of and he just rocks it and kind of like takes over. Um, I think it'd be great. And so I'm I want to that train. Yeah, but I want to see him come to that that place on his own. And sometimes you do need, yeah, you do need to bring a like a catalyst sometimes in to kind of give somebody that kick in the butt. Um, but I'd like him to him to come to that realization through some event that is not a horrible thing at NCIS, because it, the situation getting so bad that he is okay with his partners leaving with him without backup. Um. I do like using that as his wake up. Are you still there? I think I think she unplugged her headset. There was a little got, sound. It kicked me off. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, I like I like using dead air as a as a kick in the kick in the butt that kind of is a straw that broke the camel's back, but it is the straw that broke the camel's back, right? And it, that's a completely different mentality than. Um, him coming to that realization on his own, you know, as opposed to it think getting so bad that even he can see it now, right? Dead air was like <clears throat> it made me realize just how terrible the writing was. That they saw zero ramifications for what they did. And I knew they were never going to address those ripples. No. And I was like, "Oh my God, this this show has been is 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 amateur hour, and I'm done." And it, it was it was just like I never took any of it seriously again. It was just like <sighs> they so, had no uh, respect whatsoever for um for any for of it. Him. Yeah, for him as a character, they don't have any respect for law enforcement procedure for um, what it means to go out in the field and rely on other people to be your backup. They didn't have any re respect for any of it. It's ugly. Very. Um, so you can use an event like Dead Air as your catalyst, definitely. Uh, but I will say that that's just the only reason I brought that whole thing up is that the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing where Tony just gets fed up and walks away. Uh, there's a lot of that. Um, 
there's less, which is why it would be more, I think, what I would be interested in writing, uh, or at least working up something for, there's less of him just coming into his own and going, I deserve more. I deserve a Navy SEAL in Hawaii. Of course, you got, I'd prefer to him come to that realization long before season eight. So you'd have to bridge that gap, that time gap. Mothership. Long live the mothership. But like if I were in the same vein, if I were approaching Tony Stark in the same vein, um, I would look at him just deciding he wasn't going to be manipulated by S.H.I.E.L.D. That he wasn't going to fall for that crap, right? Long before, I mean, there's a lot of events that are that are appealing to fix a lot in the MCU. But just what if, how would it be different if he just didn't fall for it? And I think a lot would be different if Tony was more of a powerful force, if he used, because um, I don't think he uses his wealth or his influence as effectively as he could. Um, considering that S.H.I.E.L.D. was a secret organization, they had a lot more power over him than was reasonable, considering how wealthy Tony was. Um, anyway, so I think that you can, but I will say, I do think that one of the things that one of the reasons why these are the less popular approaches to a character based fix it is because they do require a lot of working out the consequences of the changes you're making. And fan fiction writers can have a really hard time breaking away from canon. Um, like the, we've seen it, we've talked about it over and over again. They change dramatic things and yet they circle back to canon. Uh, and so when you're doing a, a fix it that's based on a character just saying, I don't think so, or you're not going to push me around, or I'm done hiding my talents, or whatever it is, there are the ramifications take you far away from canon events happening. And you have to work out a logical progression of events. And I think that can be very uncomfortable for a lot of writers. Not all, but a lot of writers really struggle with that. Even writers I know who I think sometimes do a really good job of working out consequences will weirdly circle back to canon in ways that feels clunky. It's like, why have, you know, it's like they take Tony like on a journey where he has a lot of realizations and he gets like all this self-respect and it's like, and then he decides to stay on the team. Um, I was like, I don't, that feels like an attachment to, they found it so dysfunctional. They wanted to fix it. And yet they're still so attached to it that they keep him there. We do get emotionally attached to aspects of canon, but it, it becomes a failure of both characterization and plot when a character goes through a, a journey, an emotional journey that should change events, right? Should change things for them. And yet the plot winds up, it circles back to the plot doesn't change. So it's like, and, I, and maybe they're trying to have that sort of pseudo canon compliant fix it, which I find to be the whole canon compliance thing just ridiculous. It's absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. Absurd. It's like it's like you write a big story, right? Between that takes place between episode A and B, right? So it's a but it's a between episode story where you're dealing with all the fallout of this episode or this movie or whatever. And then you have your next movie or your next episode be unchanged. Well, what was the point of all of that? And 
it's like when I read a story where Tony goes on a journey, either Tony, but we'll talk about Denozo, you know, where he's goes on a journey where he sees all the dysfunction on the team and he sees that it's not good for him and that he is, you know, even even to having the realization that he is not doing his best for the victims of crimes because he's so busy um, dealing with the in dynamics of the team. And he has these realizations. And then at the end of the story, he stays on the team. That is a complete, to me, failure of characterization. Because his whole journey is for nothing. He's going to stand up for himself. Well, I think the now. words canon compliant, I think boring. Yeah. That's not why I read fan fiction. Yeah. Well, some people who write the canon compliant, they're not rewriting canon. What they're doing is they're slipping something in between episodes. Um, but I still don't introduction. Typically, I just am going to, unless it's an author that I really, really like, I'm going to nope right out of that because I just don't see the point of, of, I don't think you can fix things in an in-between episodes and then, and have canon all be the same. What the fuck was fixed? The character's thought processes? I mean, yes, that needs to be fixed, but there's apparently no outward manifestation of that. I do enjoy a good coffee shop AU. I'm not gonna lie. I don't. I know you don't. That's okay, but that's okay. I, mean, I have read one or two that I thought were um, entertaining, but considering how many there are, one or two is not saying much. Yeah, my favorite is Fair Trade by Estefi. Um, it is awesome. I highly recommend you read it. You in the general. Everybody. Now, I will read a I will read a coffee shop AU a hundred times a day and two hundred times on Sunday before I will read a high school AU. I mean, just stab me with a spork. <laughs> no, I, I have I just I cannot stand high school AUs. I, the only high school AU that I probably would read, and it would have to be written by somebody I really trust, would be an SGA crossover with Sky High. Or fusion. Like if you put the SGA team um, cast in Sky High, I'd be all over it. <laughs> Very entertaining. Um, but I just I, like there. You know, you take the cast of NCIS and you put them in high school. Uh, no, no. I, I'm not even. Gonna, I'm not even going to open it. Mm -mm. It's just no. I have a hard nope on that. I didn't. I didn't want to read about people in high school when I was in high school. So. But Sky High is a little bit of a different thing, right? That became a high school that is like a fascinating world. And so, but just in general to have like, you know. I just picture Rodney in sidekick class, pissed off that he's in sidekick class. Yeah. Or the Teen Wolf. The Teen Wolf. Now the Teen Wolf cast, you put them in Sky High, they are a high school show, right? So Right. So it wouldn't be like a high school AU. It would just be a fusion. Um. Anyway, so the goal of the fix it, any kind of fix it, is that you're going to change stuff. But I, I have read the fix it, where the fix it was basically reading between the lines and nothing changed in canon. And if that's the kind of fix it you want to write, I actually don't have any advice for you <laughs> because I just don't see the point. Part of the whole fix it craft is exploring the the ripple effect. That's the whole quantum craft is about exploring the ripples of what you're doing. Whether it's big or small, a tiny little tiny little change can have huge consequences. Um, and exploring that is 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 the craft, right? That is what we're doing. And if you have no consequences, if it's all just in somebody's head, 
I just don't see that. It just it just doesn't resonate as what what we're trying to do. You can do it, but I just don't have a, like any. I, the idea of Sherlock Holmes from the BBC in Hogwarts, I I just, I mean, John and him would have to be sorted together first year, and John would spend the entire seven years he was there making sure no one cursed Sherlock in the back. <laughs> because he would be an absolute asshole from moment one. <laughs> he wouldn't even be safe around the teachers. <laughs> Not even the ones that are crazy, that are normal. Um, I don't, you know, Hogwarts AUs are something I I almost never read. No, where like where they're if I you know, read Harry Potter, I'm gonna read Harry Potter. Yeah, that's just and usually the majority, not all, but the majority of HP stuff I read is either Harry's a kid, like a kid kid, like a little, like he's getting his do-over, or post Hogwarts. I mean, that's the majority. That's your sweet well, spot. Yeah, because I just it especially if it's really and the stuff that's Hogwarts era that I do read it's not really focused on the going to school the drudgery of class I just don't want to read that no so. it's not fun to write either um like a, a Hogwarts era exception would be darkly loyal but it's because they were they were grown-ass adults in those little bodies <laughs> doing terrible things but they were 16 17 years old in, in darkly loyal so it wasn't like they were first years killing a whole bunch of people which you know, I have to admit, when I first started plotting Darkly Loyal, and I was trying to figure out how old they, they would be when they went back in time, the deciding factor on how, how old they would be was the age of consent in Britain. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I was like... Because <sighs> as amusing as it would be to write three first years wrecking that much havoc on Great Britain, um... What's the point of writing a hot ass threesome if I can't have hot ass thre threesome sex? <laughs> there you go. Um, there are Francis. several. There are several John, John and Sherlock Ray's Harry Potter stories. Those those exist. Yeah, um, there are there are a bunch of those. I don't know how I feel about those either. I mean, for me, the thing is, is that any fi I mean, any fix it for Harry Potter that leaves. Um, that starts at that age and leaves Sirius Black in jail, um, innocent, and being tortured by Dementors really bothers me. Uh, I've read a couple where Sherlock and them, at least one that I can, I, I can't, I couldn't tell you who who wrote it. It was a really long time ago. Um, where they get where they get Sirius out of. Um... I also don't like ones where Sirius gives up his responsibilities to Harry and lets somebody else raise him. No, I think the one I the one I, the one I'm thinking of um, is where, uh, where Harry winds up living in 221C. Not Harry. Um, serious. He winds up living in 221C Baker Street. So he lives downstairs, and Harry goes between the three apartments, A, B, and C. Because uh, just you know, there's something about it. Because when he agreed to be the godparent, he told James and Lily that he would that he would raise their son, and to give that up. Well, I don't think that he necessarily has to give it up just because he's co-parenting with some people. I mean, but often, but often that's how it goes in those fics, and I just can't stand to read it. Yeah, 
I mean, I could see that Sirius um, might need time, like a couple, you know, because he, if he's coming out of, you know, even if he's only been in um, Azkaban for a year, which is going to be, a, in most of these stories, it's quite a bit longer than that. Yeah, it is. He, um, he is, uh, he's going to be messed up and not, not in a place to be able to be an effective parent. But so if he needs time, that's one thing. But just to just say, okay, I'm going to turn custody over to this person and no, and that's fuck just off. not. I find it so contrary to his character because the only reason we meet Sirius Black is that he saw Scrabbers in the paper and realized that Wormtail was in school with Harry Potter. And when he gets free, he goes and finds Harry. He's focused entirely on Harry. It isn't about Wormtail until Wormtail shows himself. He goes to Privet Drive. Why the fuck does he go to Privet Drive? How did how did Sirius Black know where Harry Potter was living? That is an interesting question. I would have to think it's my headcanon that he couldn't know that that's where Harry was going to go. So I would. It makes me think that there's an implied magical connection between them that he can follow. I yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to do with that. That's what I would. That that that's probably what I would write. Yeah. Now that it's on my brain. Um. He had to know Petunia existed because Petunia and Vernon went to James and Lily's wedding. That's when everything went off the rails between them because James apparently was kind of an asshole to Vernon. Um, so he had to know she existed when, but he went straight to Harry. He, he left Azkaban, came ashore and went straight to Privet Drive. Well, we don't know how long it took him to get to Privet Drive, do we? But yeah, well, I think I think he would have to have been following it. I don't think he because even if he knew who Vernon and Petunia were, he wouldn't have had any way of knowing where they lived. Where they lived. So it it does make me think that he had he was fo- following some magical connection to Harry. It would have to be that. And he really never had any problem finding Harry. He had zero problems finding Harry. Yeah, I have it in a fic where Harry tells Draco th- that. It keeps him up at night that he never tried to summon that egg. <laughs> yeah. And Draco's like, no, of course. They they surely had a... And he's like, no, wait. You probably could have summoned it. <laughs> I want to write a fic where Harry just goes out there and summons it. <laughs> and then gets everybody in the stadium a really dirty look and then goes back into the tent. <laughs> And then they're like, you guys, did who for, and then they're like, did no one think to put anti-summoning charms on the egg? No, we didn't think that would occur to it. It just didn't occur to us. Because that's just how impractical and in, impractical wizards and witches are. Harry was last. Harry went last. Yeah. Of course he did. Of course he did. Because that that's the formula. For the, that's the formula. He went he last and he got the worst dragon. Yeah. And he, um, and it, and but of necessity, because his dragon did get loose, so it's not like anybody else is going to be able to compete after him. I agree. He should just talk to it. I think he should have tried that too. Just embrace being a parcel mouth and see if he can speak dragon. <laughs> just go for broke. <laughs> like, hey, can we have a talk? <laughs> can we chat? This is really dumb. I'm sorry they brought you here. 
Can I have that fake egg? <laughs> That's also a point. Okay, so he couldn't bring the broom into the stadium, but why did he leave the broom in Hogwarts? Yeah, he could have put it closer. He could have pitched it up onto the roof of Hagrid's hut, and that would have been a better option than what he actually did. Or Hermione could have brought it I'd into say, the stadium. That was my thought, as Hermione had it. Well, I don't think he was. Um, I don't. Would, I would not have him use the invisibility cloak because why? While yes, it could be beneficial. He doesn't need to advertise to the entire magical world that he has an invisibility cloak. Yeah, it's 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 really exposing a serious advantage. Some things you just don't need to reveal. Can we not talk about Donkey and the Dragon? Can we not? <laughs> Here's a question that I do have about Donkey and the Dragon. Just one? Well, just one, yeah. I mean, did she lay eggs? I would assume. So her little donkey, her little donkey dragons <laughs> were in eggs? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I'm assuming we're doing kind of a, a, um, you know, external fertilization thing, you know? Fertilize the eggs externally. I don't. I don't. I don't. Lay them and then fertilize them. There's just no other way to. There's just no other way to do it. Uh, that's not. Look at Dark. She's using Margaret's age to stop this conversation. <laughs> for the record, for those of you who are on the podcast, Margaret is actually of age. She is legally an adult. <laughs> In most places. <laughs> In most places. But she is the baby. She is the baby of the she group, can, though. She can vote, but she cannot drink. <laughs> Legally. But I assume that dragons would copulate. So I don't know how he would be able to fertilize the eggs if she laid them. Well, we're just going to assume she's a different kind of dragon. Because <laughs> what, what do you think he did? Crawls up in there? I think he must have, yes. Good lord. <laughs> she had heart seeds. <laughs> what in the world does that have to do with the mothership? <laughs> She's trying to do, to distract me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so there's like 18 countries in the world where Margaret's not an adult yet. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were over there looking that up. I knew it. <laughs> I like to be sure I know these things. You know, it's important. <laughs> Although, really, the age of majority in Mississippi is 21? That's yeah, really, it is. It, that's but, really interesting for a state that will let you marry your cousin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they've got, they've got, they've got a little bit of, like... The age of majority is 21, but you can enter contracts at 18, but it's considered contract of a minor. Yeah, they refer to them as minors. The minor's ability to sue. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so you become, you reach your age of majority and you can drink in Mississippi on the same fucking day. All right. Well, here you go. Um, well, wow. Yeah. There are a lot of places where you can get married at 12 in, in the U.S., unfortunately, with, with parental and judicial approval. So I think usually it's in the case of pregnancy. 
But what also needs to be said is that most teenage pregnancies, the father is not a teenager. Yes, that's true. Which is adult men are responsible for most teenage pregnancies. So Alabama is nineteen. Huh. It's not eighteen in Alabama. In Alabama and Nebraska. So there are in the U.S. There are four places that are not eighteen. It is Alabama, Nebraska are both nineteen, and then Mississippi and Puerto Rico are twenty-one. Huh. <laughs> Why did we get a Lucius Malfoy cartoon? I like his sparkles. Was he bit by a Twilight vampire? Well, the Minion theme song is Will You Help Me Hide a Body? It has been that for many, many a year. And no, it never has to be just in one piece. That's my favorite line, is it doesn't have to be in one piece. Right? You guys got really dark really quickly. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Jeez, Ellie. Oh my god, that movie is actually great. The book's better, but the movie is great. Fried green tomatoes. The secrets in the sauce. Great movie. Although, when I was younger, I didn't get the context. It wasn't until I watched it um, when I was 19 or 20 that I got the context for um, for the movie. And that, um, because I didn't understand that they were in love. And I was, when I figured it out, it made it so much worse. It made it so much more heartbreaking. <laughs> it's a very subtle, beautiful book. I read the book in my 20s. I saw the movie when I was, when I was young, but for the first time. I don't <clears> think I ever read the book. Um, the book is called Something in the Whistle Stop Cafe. The movie's called Fried Green Tomatoes. If you go over to Wikipedia and look it up, they'll give you um, the title of the book. Okay, question in the Ask Me Question page. Can a Hobbit, Everybody Lives, Fix It be character-driven, or are they always plot-driven? Again, I think you have to ask yourself what you're fixing. Because there are so many elements involved in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings that need to be fixed. Um... And if you're just keeping the Durans alive, then I would say that's character-based. But if your ultimate goal is to have Bilbo have the support of Erebor, he needs to destroy the One Ring before Frodo ever has to carry it, then I would consider that plot-driven. Okay, so the movie is called Fried Green Tomatoes, and the book is called Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. And I highly I recommend both. See, I actually tend to think that I'm I'm a I'm a little on a different fence from Kira on this. Is if somebody just said that the sole goal was to save the Durans, I would say that that was plot driven, because yes, you're saving a character, but you're changing an event. The sole purpose of the story is to prevent an event from occurring. So, without knowing what the what the what the what the internal motivators are, or it's hard to say. Um, I mean, you, you need to understand the goal, motivation, the conflict, all of that stuff to say if, if that kind of plot is event-driven or character-driven. Because just saving the Durans, that, that, them dying is an event you're trying to prevent from happening. If, well, for me, the, the reason I would save Thorin and the rest of them is but you're because, inferring. Bilbo, 
Right, I'm inferring because it made Bilbo sad. <laughs> right, that, so it's it's character driven if it's based upon Bilbo and what's going on with him, and da, 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 but that, that could be character driven. But if you're just trying to save them, it, that sounds like an event to me. Is that you're trying to prevent an event? So. Um, if somebody just says to me, this is why it's important to know what you're trying to do. If somebody just says to me, I'm going to save the Durans, I would say that's an event, right? You're preventing an event. If somebody says, I want Bilbo to fall in love and happy, happy life with Thorin, I would say that's character driven. So it just, it, but that's just, a, that's like a broad brushstroke, right? So if I say, Tony, I want Tony to have a better life, that sounds character driven. Um I want there to be realistic consequences for dead air. Sounds event driven, but it might not be. So the broad brushstroke can be misleading. That's why it's important that you know what you're trying to accomplish. But in the end, what I would say is that it doesn't matter if it is character driven or plot driven. As long as you understand what you're doing and how you're going to do it. Yeah. Not one is better than the other. No. You're going to have a characters and you're going to have a plot either way. The question is, is, are you trying to fix events or are you trying to fix things for a character? That's really the defining difference, right? It's not about whether you're a character-driven writer or a plot-driven writer. It's about what you're, if, when it comes to the type of fix that you're doing, you can be a plot-driven writer and be doing a character-based fix-it. Those well, things are not in conflict. That. What I would say about that is that it, making sure the Durans live would be a personal fix it for all three of them. It would be character driven for them. If you're, if they're your POV character, sure. But if it's Bilbo's POV, I mean, it all, but it, this is why it really all matters. Who's, who's doing what, oh, who, what your point of view is. I mean, cause yes, it, it impacts them as characters, but everything impacts people as characters, but that is an event that's being fixed, right? If what you're doing is I, it, now see, if you were saying, I'm going to, I'm going to save the Durns so that Thorin can rule Erebor and finally get his mountain and get his Hobbit. I would say that sounds character-based fix it. Like you're trying to fix things for Thorin specifically. It's hard to say without knowing what somebody because you're going to have characters and you're going to have plot either way. But are you trying to fix events or are you trying to fix things for a character? Because that's what we talked about at the beginning, right? Is is it? It doesn't matter if you're a character or a plot-driven writer. That's not this. We're talking about the type of fix it. Is it a character-based fix it or a event-based fix it? And they don't necessarily go hand in hand. I could write, as a character-driven writer, I could write something that is that is an event-based fix-it, but I'm still going to be focusing more on characterization and the character dynamics than probably the, the actual plot events, because that's the way I write. I don't know that POV can be the deciding factor in that. I didn't say um, it was the deciding factor. I mean, I'm just, but you say it, it, that it that it that it mattered. That the, the I think POV it, mattered. I think it um, does matter. I don't think it does. I think you well, can have a character base fix it. Like, I mean, even if Eru says, okay, uh, no. And he's the one that decides the Durans are going to live. And he's going to be the, um, his decision, his emotional reaction to this event is the catalyst for change. I don't understand the distinction you're making because well, yeah, what, what I, I'm saying I, is, is okay. This is what he wants, but he wouldn't have a. I mean, his POV, if it happened at all in the fit, would be very limited. But it would still be. 
but I'm, I'm not talking about the catalyst. I'm saying whether or not it's a character-based fix that depends. Point of view, I think, does play into it, right? Because if you're fixing things for Thorin, right? If it's a character-based fix it for Thorin, right? You're making life better for Thorin. Mm-hmm. And you're never in Thorin's point of view, ever. I, I would personally have a, I mean, yes, it could be exter- entirely external point of view. I don't think the point of view of the catalyst matters. But I think it matters if the person you're fixing it for, if they're never, I mean, or at least somebody very close to them, you know, they need to be a main character in the story. It can't be a character-based fix-it if it's mostly focused on Bilbo, but, and call it a thorn-based fix-it. That doesn't gel in my head if it's all in Bilbo's POV. It doesn't, POV. Mean, it because doesn't for, Because for me, that's, but, but see, to me, that's a Bilbo, the character-driven fix-it is for Bilbo. The events that are being fixed are around Thorin. So that's just the way it makes sense in my mind, because if it's all being told from Bilbo's point of view and it's Bilbo's emotional progression that we're going through, but the events that are different, the events that are fixed are for Thorin. I have a hard time saying that's a Thorin based character driven fix it. It just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't gel to me at all. I mean, but you know, this is a case of where you just have to know what you're doing and decide your approach. Um, we're not fighting. <laughs> We're not. We just. This is just a case of where I. We have different ways we cat, cat, you know, categorize these things in my head. I just. To me, if I'm writing something that's character based, fix it. Fixing things that. It it feels like it's event driven if the character that's being fixed from is not in any fashion on screen in their point of view. I just wouldn't do it. I would call that event for them. You're fixing their events, but the character whose journey you're following is actually not the, not the character that things are being fixed for. So, Jillian and I often talk about how we have a very similar process, but we are dynamically very different writers. We approach things from very different angles. And I think we've learned that a lot doing these ones and its prompts that while we can come into something with the same theme, that we often um, make different choices, uh, both in craft and characterization and in plot, uh, just because of our personal processes. And people who think that we agree all the time. <laughs> Yeah, or worse than the ones who think we're the same person. <laughs> but she, you know, J- Julie has a very deep character narrative, and I don't. Um, I I ride the top of my narrative. Uh, she is down in the basement with hers. <laughs> She's deep. She's deep in her character. I hope she asked permission first. <laughs> <laughs> and so. For me, when it comes to the death of the Durans, I don't consider that, I mean, it's part of a bigger event. It's part of the Battle of the Five Armies. I consider that one big giant event in the plot for the Hobbit. And so for me to take that little part out and say, okay, the Durans are not going to die during the Battle of the Five Armies, I would not consider that small, that small moment in the Battle of the Five Armies as devastating as it is. To be an individual event. Well, I agree. It, it is certainly of, isn't an individual plot point. It is part of. I'm not sure I agree with you that it's not a plot point, though, because if the Durans don't die, the next plot point. I mean, it is. I think there's multiple plot points within the event of the Battle of the Five Armies, and I think them dying is one of them. 
Well, the next plot point after the Battle of the Five Armies is Bilbo going home. Because Bilbo is the central character of The Hobbit. Um, so no, I mean, I would lump it all together. I don't consider that, but that's, I don't look. I don't look at the Battle of the Five Armies as all just one plot point. Because if 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 you save the Durans, does Bilbo go home? The it, battle, the well, battle still, the battle still happens. So, if um, you were writing a canon compliant story, yes, Bilbo would absolutely go home. How can you save the Durans and write a canon compliant story? That's crazy, cakes. Well, what I'm saying is, I don't think you can write canon compliant to begin with. I agree. But what I'm saying is, is if you're writing a from straight canon characterization where Bilbo and Thorin do not have any kind of romantic or sexual relationship, um, then, Bil- then Bilbo goes home. I say I don't. I don't agree because I think that um, I think Bilbo had a lot to stay for and a lot of reason to stay, and I think Thorin would have wanted him to stay. It, re- re- I don't think it has anything to do with romantic relationship. I think but this Bilbo is was also uh, the same dwarf who almost murdered him and almost it held him over a cliff. And so you, when you look at Bilbo as a character, you have to give him a reason to want to stay around this man, this dwarf, whatever you want to call him, who nearly murdered him. And I, I think you need more than what we're given in canon for that to happen. I think that last conversation they had with each other was showed how they felt about each other even if it was platonic it showed something so um I yeah, guess but does, case, that, this... does that situation happen if thorin's not dying does thorin ever come to the realization that he made a terrible mistake with bilbo because he doesn't die he doesn't come close to dying if, if you save him right well it's but, but it, i mean that's that's something that you have to work i think it's possible i mean i see more possibility for i don't think that the battle of the five armies is a single plot point and you do so that's that's like just a a, a fundamental like an, uh, we'll call that an irreconcilable difference and neither <laughs> one of, I, don't, I don't think either one of us is right or wrong there because i see potential i think there's multiple plot points in the battle of the five armies because certain things had to happen for the next thing to happen it wasn't just one giant event now one giant oh, there are point. multiple events in the Battle of the Five Armies, but it is a single plot point. I disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's there's just too many things that are critical that had to happen for things to come out the way they did to say that it's just one one thing. So I I don't I think that changing I think that Thorin dying is is a separate plot point that had well, a significant, was, yeah. that has an impact. It is a significant impact. Um but it wouldn't have happened if the Battle of the Five Armies wasn't happening. Um, Tamara says in the chat room that there are things you may forgive but not can't forget. Yeah, but if Thorin doesn't face his own mortality, does he get shaken free enough of the gold sickness to apologize to Bilbo for what he did? I think he could, but you're—I mean, you're—you're—you've already—you've already decided that he can't, and I don't agree. Well, no, so. no, I'm asking you. But but you said he, you, you already said he wouldn't. There's no way that if Bil- that if Thorin survived, that Bilbo wouldn't go home unless there was a romantic relationship. And I don't fundamentally agree. Well, this agree. is about Thorin, not about Bilbo. Does Thorin shake loose of the gold sickness without his without nearly dying and apologize to Bilbo for what he did? But he could be. I mean, I think it's possible. I think the reality of that battle could have really because I mean he was completely irrational. Up to yes, he was in his in his weird assumption that like the fourteen of them are going to be well, it was actually less than fourteen. We're going to be able to hold Erebor. It was absurd. 
Like 12 and a half, if you count um, Bobo. Because yeah, the boys so, were in Lake Town, right? Well, in the movie, the boys and Oin and... I don't remember when they all got joined together, but the boys and Oin and... and uh, uh, um, Bomber, not Bomber, um, Bofer were all in. I think they, I think those are the ones who stayed behind in Lake Town. But I don't remember when they all got like back together. I don't remember but, it in the in the book either. But it remember. it it was. Um, <laughs> I think I cognitive think, recalibration. I, I think you could definitely write it such that you could write it either way. I think that's the thing. I think there's room to interpret. Thorne is not having that kind of come to Jesus moment or having it and living. So I don't think he had to like die to have that moment. I think he could have had it just the reality of the battle, how badly he'd misjudged things. Um, being away from the treasury could have given him a wake up call and he'd realized what he'd done to somebody he considered a friend. I mean, I think there's a lot of, I think potential. the argument actually could be made that it wasn't his own death or near death or his state of dying that broke him free of gold madness, but probably the death of his nephews. And I think their near death could have accomplished the same thing. So, but I think when it comes to, is, is it event or is it character based fix it? It all is about what you're trying to do. It's such a purpose. What, what, what your end game is. And if you don't know your end game, it's like really impossible to answer because things can sound one way from the outside and it's not actually what you're trying to do. I do believe that um, it, it is my headcanon that the Durans um, were literally cursed. That there was literally a magical curse I on agree. them. Um, some kind of compulsion. And a heavy emotional shock might be enough to break that free. I don't think a physical um, cognitive recalibration would have worked. But you can kick him in the head and check. <laughs> Well, they're pretty hard-headed. I mean... <laughs> I read a really good fic once where um, the Durans did survive and um, Bilbo had PTSD basically in response to Thorin's um, actions. And while he forgave him, he could not forget it. And it... Um, he He couldn't... He couldn't stay in Erebor because he feared. After everything was said and done, he feared Thorin falling back into gold madness and trying to kill him again. Mm -hmm. And eventually Thorin comes to the Shire. Um, but I don't think it was finished. Because I don't remember the ending. But I remember it being, it was very smart. The, the author put a lot of effort into exploring um, the trauma that Bilbo went through um, and, you know, having nightmares about it and having conflict because he was, before it happened, in love with Thorin. And um, in Thorin's madness, he he severely damaged that that love Bilbo had for, for him, which, you know, was very realistic. It's very, it was very, it was very, I, I, I wish I remembered it because I, I could go back to it and see if it was finished because it was been it's been a couple of years since I read it. Yeah, I've, I've I, I don't that doesn't sound even remotely familiar to me, but it does sound interesting. Um, there are um, uh, also several stories where it's the influence of the the ring. Um, 
And you could even argue that coupled with the one ring in Bilbo's pocket, it amplifies the effect of Thorin's ring. So I think there's ways you could do it. Now, if I were doing a fix it based on to, to save the Durans, I would actually back it up to before the dangling him off of. Yeah, it's a, that's a hard event to get past, actually. I mean, I've, I've read stories where the author doesn't really deal with that much more than, okay, I forgive you, you weren't in your right mind kind of thing. And I can read it, but it wouldn't, I, my suspension of just my, my willingness to, to go there as a writer is really different. But I definitely can read it because I've read plenty of stories where they do get past that. I just don't, I just wouldn't write it personally that way. So I would, I would probably have them, I deal, I would, if assuming the battle is still going to go down, which it, it probably would. I mean, that battle, that, that's in process anyway, those armies are marching. So at least one of them is, um, I would figure out the source of the gold sickness and have it dealt with so that he, that, that event never occurs. That's the way I would approach it. And you could, you could argue that the ripple of that is maybe Thorne's got a is clearer clearer in his head you know he's clear-minded when he um goes into battle and it makes him he fights better because he's not laboring under the burden of a curse it makes sense and maybe he tells his nephews I, you know, he locks them in the in the in Erebor and tells them that they can't come out and that's how they survive your mother doesn't even know you're here get in there stay my that's actually one of my favorite i don't think it was yeah bilbo they realize that, that Bilbo has the one ring and Thorin's like, it's like the, it's like, it's like the entire planet is, is, is in on a conspiracy to keep me from getting my mountain back because he realizes he needs to take Bilbo to Mordor <laughs> to get rid of this yeah. fucking ring. <laughs> but then it, it becomes, because they went, winds up being the reason why they're able to, um, because the dragon gets pissed off and leaves Erebor and ends up in Mordor with them. <laughs> so the fact that they made that detour is why they were able to reclaim Erebor without them dying. Um, and get a cool-ass airship. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great fic. Um, and Claire has provided a link um, to one of them. I'm not sure which one this is. It's called That Wasn't Part of the Plan by Mad Fairy. And then Dark. Was this a time travel one that you have, Dark? Oh, no. That's the one with the... That one's the one that's just so terribly angsty that it makes me cry. I can't read that one. <laughs> okay, somebody asked a question. Would the... Would, would the catalyst for Rodney switching from sidekick to supervillain be plot or character driven? I, that would be up to you. Cat, the catalyst doesn't have anything to do with whether it's plot or character driven um, or character focused. Fix it. Um, the catalyst is just what is the impetus for change? Why? What has happened that is taking your story away from canon? Because in a fix it or canon divergence, something has to happen to make your story go in a different direction. So you need some kind of catal catalyst for that. So the catalyst isn't isn't doesn't necessarily feed one way or the other. Um, so it's a matter of, I mean, it sounds, because it sounds, in, in the phrasing, Rodney switches from sidekick to supervillain, sounds character, a character-based story to me. Although I, if he's becoming a supervillain, it doesn't sound much, like, much of a fix-it. But anyway, um, it does sound character-driven. But without like seeing a plot outline, it would, there's just like no way to know. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on what what and why. Yeah, the, what and why is everything. So, and maybe that's the thing, is when you're approaching a character-based fix-it, everything you're doing in your in that story is you're, you're focused on typically one character, but I guess you could have a few characters that are... Well, let's just talk about it as if you're do, doing one character, and just it's, it's a little more complicated when you are doing multiple characters, but I think one character is your focus really helps. And then, you know, if you've got secondary characters, you're fixing things for too. Okay, great. But is your goal, your goal, the purpose of your story is about that character. It is not about, um, events might get fixed incidentally, but your the purpose is about the character. The purpose is not necessarily about fixing the events. So it's just a matter of, the lens at which you're telling your story through. Um, no, no Snape emo blog. I want to send you right to the corner. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's one thing to write Dumbledore and Rodney, but Snape would just be one yeah. big ode to how he didn't get to bang his childhood friend. Oh, gross. Gross. Um, <laughs> Look, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, but let's, okay. So let me give an example. So if you're writing a fix it for the episode bounce in um, NCIS, which is the episode where it, you'd actually be writing a fix it for the summer that Tony was in charge. Okay. So let's say you're writing a fix it where things go better on the team and Renny Grant doesn't wind up going to jail for what, over a year for a crime he didn't commit because the, the, whether the investigation goes better or whatever, right? So you're changing things so that that miscarriage of justice doesn't happen, right? That would be, to me, you're trying to fix an event. You're trying to prevent, because I would have to think that would be a really low moment for like ev- any, any cop, federal agent, or whatever, that they mess up an investigation and an innocent person goes to jail. That'd be awful, right? Which is one of the reasons why it was clear that... that awful. Yeah. It was clear that Tony let him get away um, when he should have kept him. And the guy didn't have the money on him, but he knew the guy had the money. So, I mean, on some part, he, he was like, this is this is like, it's just that this, that with this guy winds up with the money because he spent a year plus in jail for something he didn't do. Probably closer to... Uh, yeah, a year. I think it was a year. Um, so if if that's your focus, right, is you, you write, the, let's say you focus on the investigation, you write it so that it goes better. They prove that Rennie Grant didn't actually commit that crime. Um, and that's your story. That is very event focused, right? However, you could tell the same story that is character focused, where Tony realizes that he thinks they're doing a slipshot investigation and the whole thing, the whole investigation itself is the catalyst for Tony realizing that this is a dysfunctional environment and he needs something better. He deserves something better. The people he's investigating the crimes for deserve something better. And he takes the position to Rhoda. I remember one, I remember a bounce fix it where um, he asked, McGee to verify the financial data, the paper trail, and McGee refuses. And he ends up, he asks Abby to do it, and Abby accuses him of not trusting McGee. And so he ends up, 
I feel like he went to Garcia. Hmm. And she found it in like an instant. Now, that could be, in, I mean, I haven't read it, so that could be an event story, or it could be that if, if that leads to Tony having a more functional, that could be focused about Tony realizing that he needed, a, you know, the in, environment needed to be different, it needed to be better, um, he deserved better, whatever. So you could take the same basic idea that has the same basic outcome in terms of the events, which is that Rennie Grant doesn't go to jail, but the overall slant of the story is completely different because one is a case fic where Rennie doesn't go to jail and that is an event fix it right you fix this bad event the other is Tony maybe goes to a different team he takes a different team whatever that end game is it's like the case the events are the journey he goes on to take him to this better place and that would be a character based to me I don't think it was Tony and Ian Edgerton it might have been. I mean, that is one of the pairings that I will read in NCIS. And I'll read Gibbs and Tony if it's very early in the series. But not when later. Okay, and so... I will nope out of a fix so fucking fast if Gibbs hits Tony in the back of the head while he's while they're in a relationship. No. Because, because it's like that becomes something quite different. I don't like it anyway. I think it's very unprofessional, and child. And it, he's treated he treats his team like child, not like children. But for him to hit his romantic partner is domestic violence. Okay, so someone's saying it is an Ao3 story, um, and it. I don't. I don't think this is a rough trade story because I typically, at least, look at the rough trade stories that are NCIS. Um, but somebody, somebody's saying it's an. It is a Criminal Minds crossover. Um, I think you're right, Harley. I think it. I think it probably is Wear Leopard. I don't think so. I'm having a mental bet with myself that it's um, Lit Gal or Marzipan. Actually, I don't know if that's how you spell her name. Because I well, Wear Leopard has a whole bunch of like evil author day things, and it was like there were a whole bunch of dead air tags. I got to. This is. Um, okay. But that wasn't a dead air tag, obviously. It's Bounce, right? It was Bounce. And he goes, he goes to Garcia. I'm pretty sure it's Garcia. And then Garcia gets really bent. She's kind of furious because Abby didn't, didn't help him. And her and her and Abby are friends. Um, she does mention spanking Abby and it doesn't appear to be a friend, to, um, to be a fun spanking either that Abby is due to get. Do English. I'm doing some searching. Um, you think it's completed? Well, you probably read it because it was completed. No, it, it would. Um, I am very picky about the BDSM I read. I don't think it was actually um, BDSM. It was. Um, it's 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 illusions lost by Lit Gal. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that that's and Willow uh, just <laughs> Willow just popped it in there too. Let me look. Let me look. That makes a lot more sense because I um most of what I read from Wear Leopard was uh dead air tags. Cause they she has a whole collection, he or she. Um Yeah, I I'm looking at the I'm looking at the front page. This is about the Rennie Grant case. It's not tagged for bounce because bounce occurs because it does happen over the the period in time 
when Tony's in charge of the team and bounce happened like a year and a half later. So she didn't tag it for that episode, right, even though it's, it's a, a fix it for that episode. It keeps him from ending up in jail. Right. Which uh, that would be, you know, that's, that's the way you would do a fix it for bounce as you prevent it from ever happening. He never goes to jail. Well, it can't be a specifically a response for bounce because bounce wouldn't occur if you, if you prevent Grant from going to jail. So it, I could see why she tagged it for hiatus and not for bounce. But it does deal with the events that come up that you don't learn about until bounce. Because um, they occurred during that time period when Tony was in charge of the team. That failed investigation. So, you know, it you could write a fix-it that is event-focused that deals with better procedure, with da-da-da-da. But if you're writing something that's character-focused, it's going to have just a slightly different you're going to probably want to have the same outcome in terms of the event, which is that Grant doesn't go to jail. They get the right person. But the slant of the story is different because your purpose is different if you're doing something that's character-based versus event-based. And that's why it's so important that you know your know your fic, right? Know what you're trying to do. Know your purpose. Um, know and, your question. Yeah. Since I always start with a question... You have to ask yourself, well, what's your question? What if? Why can't? Why can't Tony Stark say no? What if Tony Stark says no? What if the first time Gibbs smacked Tony Genozo in the back of the head, Tony responded by punching him in the face? It's a little bit. I would write that. <laughs> um, because the first time Gibbs hit smacked him in the back of the head was standing outside of HR in NCIS headquarters. So Tony I'm could get saying. his ass. I'm sorry, Tony could get his ass arrested. You know. Well, I think they at that point they would both get arrested because they're but they've both committed physical assault. True. I just it's so. The thing is, the interesting what, thing is, well, in the that, first time Kate questioned Tony's orders, he gave her a reprimand. I would love to read that. The thing is about that episode that's that comes up at the end of Baltimore um, is when he smacks him on the back of the head, Tony turns around and gives him a funny look and says, don't do that again. And I think they intended that to be funny, right? Like, look at how things change. Tony loves the head slaps, blah, 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 blah. But what it, I thought it was just sad. It was just sad because that shows how beat down Tony was. That the, his first reaction to someone smacking him on the back of the head was to tell him not to do that. Don't do that. He turned right around and says, don't do that. <laughs> so they intended it to be funny, but it just was sad. I agree. It is sad. I mean, what if the head slap was impetus for Tony not to go to NCIS? What if it would have been enough for me. Yeah. Like, what? It, it, like, this isn't the place for me if people are going to be smacking me. At least I don't have to worry about that with my... I mean, my partner was crooked, but at least he didn't smack me in the head. I want to end up on an after-school special. <laughs> I That's not story, funny. It's not yeah, funny. I have a... I have a story I'm working on where um, Kate um, does she because there's there's an episode I can't remember what episode it is, but when she is given some proby work to do, she calls it sexism. And so what happens is that um, in the story, Tony talks to Gibbs about it after, and he says, "You know, you giving into her is sexism." She gets proby work, calls it sexism. So you tell her she doesn't have to do it. That's actually sexist. 
So what Tony wants to do is he um, goes and he talks to um, one of the female team leads and says, look, I've got a probie who thinks that every time she's asked to do shit work, that it's sexist. So I would like to have her do, do, do a, a personnel swap. Um, and she, she goes on your team. So she winds up on a team with three women and one guy, Kate. So, so Kate is on a bigger team that's mostly women. It's Beth Matthews team, actually. So if you guys may remember Beth Matthews from DeNovo, who ran the family and sexual violence unit prior to Tony taking it over in DeNovo. I really enjoy Beth as a character. I would like to have seen something cent- like central on her. It would have been really awesome. So Beth takes Kate on board and, and they do a, a, a swap of personnel and Kate's the probie on Beth's team and she gets all the shit work. She gets to do the dumpster diving and the fingertip searches and all of that stuff because she's the fucking probie and she gets to gas the truck and she gets to restock the truck and she has to learn. She's the probationary agent. She needs to go and do this kind of stuff. And so Tony uses her going to Beth's team for a month as an object lesson about sexism that they're not treating her any differently than they would any other probie. At least Tony wasn't. And he has that moment with Gibbs of saying, you know, you giving in to her was sexist. That's what was sexist. So, um, because I think that that's actually, every time Kate, that was one of the weaknesses in Kate's character, is she was determined to make everything be about um sexism and i'm not saying that there probably isn't a fair amount of sexism uh in probably in federal agencies or especially in any kind of male dominated field but being treated like everybody else is actually not sexism (laughs) it's also actually bad characterization because um kate wasn't just secret service kate was on the potus detail you don't get there Without working your ass off. Right. And she should have known that at the time that um, she wouldn't have been exempt from going to Flat C when she came over to NCIS. Because the the training track for people going into the protection side of the Secret Service is completely different than what other law enforcement agents do, right? They're not criminal investigators. So she would have still had to go and take all of those classes. So she would have come into... NCIS. She might have had some her 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 first benefits, like her her time in service would have been maintained, right? But she would have still been a rookie. She'd have still been. She may not have been an actual probie, other than the literal probationary period. But she still would have been a rookie, and she would have understood that based upon how far she'd gotten in the Secret Service. And considering how badly she fucked up at the Secret Service, and that NCIS was a, a a godsend for her you would think that she wouldn't have been so abrasive about don't treat me like i'm a rookie well you are a rookie you may know how to protect people but you don't know a damn thing about solving crimes they they made a habit of that on the show of putting women in that position who didn't have a damn a clue what they were doing when it came to solving crimes even when they replaced ziva they replaced her with bishop who was a cia analyst what the hell did she know about solving crime nothing so it's like they deliberately put women in positions um, where the skills they did have were absolutely 100% useless. So they were in a position where Gibbs could teach them and coddle them. Well, I think they're trying to set up that father-daughter dynamic all the time 
with Gibbs and the female agents on his team. And it's just, they just need to stop it. The thing is, they make them not competent investigators and then yet never, except, except from what I've seen of Bishop a little bit, they did kind of go down that path of her learning and growing in the role and her admitting that she didn't know stuff. But Ziva and Kate never would admit they didn't know stuff. They would never have admitted that they needed training. I mean, that was just like, no, no, no. It was when it was just one small factor in NCIS that like just it was really annoying for me that they didn't treat that they infantilized. Yes, the women. They were either sex objects for Tony or daughter figures for Gibbs, and sometimes both. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. So I think that um, I will say that when it comes to if you're going to do a, I would guess when it comes to is it character driven or character based fix it versus an event based fix it, I would guess that about ninety percent are going to come out character based because most people, even if you're a plot based writer you're interested in fixing the character dynamics as much as anything, right? You're interested in making, you. we tend to fixate on a character or two or four or whatever. Um, my, it, it, certainly, I mean, there are some that are going to be hardcore event-based, right? We're going to fix these events and um, the character arc is, is, character arc is fixed incidentally to the events getting fixed. So, but I would think, from my observation from fan fiction, is most fixits come in at um, character based. That people are very focused on a character, and that, like I said, that has, I don't think it has anything to do with whether you're a plot driven writer or a character driven writer. It's just about um, what people gravitate to. They want to fix things for one of the Tonys. They want to fix things for. Um, but sometimes you come in and you go, "I just want to fix that whole clusterfuck that was Age of Ultron." Fuck you, Joss. Um, fuck you. Unfuck you, Joss. I hope you never get an erection again. <laughs> it just... Oh. <laughs> to save Jarvis. You know, as galling as the death of Jarvis is in um, Age of Ultron, I can't get past the characterization of um, Black Widow. My break for her in the in the age of it, her characterization was in Winter Soldier. It was not in age. I mean, she was awful in Age of Ultron, but it was just it felt like par for the course after Winter Soldier because she yeah. burned she burned all her coworkers, and that's so much more egregious than um than I mean what she did to Bruce infuriated me. Mm -hmm. um, but burning all those agents who she had worked with. That to me was that 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 was the defining moment of for character for her characterization. So if I'm gonna do a fix it for her, it's gotta be happened before she does that. I think the character of Delenn in Babylon Five is a badass. There is something so epic about Delenn that it doesn't matter what her gender what her gender is. She could be male or female or neither. Badass. She's not a strong woman. She's a strong character. The moment you meet her on screen, you're like, holy shit, that's a badass. 
that's badass. You know, Marcus's death in Babylon 5 was tragic. Um, but it wasn't without purpose. Sometimes you see a character get killed and it's done with such callousness and such with such a frivolous purpose. Like like in Torchwood. Absolutely. Torchwood. Um it it served no purpose except to man emotionally manipulate your the audience. But Marcus went out, you know, right. We live with the one we live for the one, we die for the one. Um, but you look at he did deserve to get laid. Yeah. The purpose of Torchwood was to emotionally destroy his audience. He succeeded. And also probably in some um, some subconscious level to punish the gay because um it is very common in storytelling for gay people to die. I mean, there's like a whole segment of literature in the 80s and early 90s where being gay was reason enough to kill your character. It was, it was full of one tragic story after another. The tragic queer narrative. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's just not... I mean, you look at, like, the ultimate tragic queer narrative, which, which would be Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Why don't you just rip my heart out of my fucking chest and river dance on it? Please. That would have been less painful than Brokeback Mountain. In my head, Brokeback Mountain really ended with the two of them on a ranch together, living out the rest of their days. And it's okay if their shirt still ended up on the same hanger in the closet. That's all for that for the topic for this evening. So I hope you guys have a fantastic um, week. And we will catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.